I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Listen, the numbers, they are not good. Day after day, you're hearing about the reality of gun violence in this country. Now, it's at least 17 dead, more than 80 shot and 13 mass shootings all across the nation just since Friday. You heard me right. Since Friday, as in today is Monday. Unbelievably, we're hearing the country is one, is on pace for its worst year ever of mass shootings. This is according to the Gun Violence Archive. That means at least 246 since the beginning of the year. The three-year uptick began in 2019, where there were 417 mass shootings recorded. It's bad enough. In 2020, it jumped to 610. And then, just last year, we were at 692. But with all those numbers, there's really only one number to keep focusing on. I mean, that's if America wants to do something about these other horrible numbers. And that is the number 10, my friends. What would persuade 10 Republicans in the 50-50 split Senate to sign on to legislation that could reduce the number of gun-related deaths in this country? Now, notice, I didn't say eliminate all gun violence. The lawyer in me has to manage your expectations and not try to lead you astray about what might not be possible in the number zero. But how about saving as many innocent lives as possible with some kind of action? One of the Republican senators in the bipartisan group of negotiators who's working on a potential deal said it quite well this morning. There is no one thing that will prevent mass killings. A determined criminal is going to be able to eventually get a gun. I understand that. But that doesn't mean there's nothing we can do to make it harder for that person to get a gun. Well said, Pat Toomey, because he's right. There is no panacea. But just because you can't do everything all at once doesn't mean lawmakers in D.C. can't do something, even if incrementally. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell said today he hopes negotiators will reach a deal this week. But he wouldn't actually tell you what proposals in the mix that he himself would personally back. I'm not sure why. I mean, why not show your hand if you're serious about getting some buy-in from your own caucus? I mean, you have great influence. And what's the risk of showing your hand when progress could be made? But we do, however, tonight know where the most conservative Democrat in the Senate stands. West Virginia's Joe Manchin, often thought of, maybe not to him, but to others as the thorn in the side of his own caucus, When he goes with the Republican colleagues, that is, well, now that thorn might be the Democrats' rose by another name. Listen to what he told our own Manu Raju earlier today. Two things that could have prevented this. An age requirement would have prevented an 18-year-old and uh, basically a, uh, a red flag law that's basically intended to try to help a person get some mental help. You think raising the age from 18 to 21 for all gun purchases? Well, that's, it's, it's where it is, everything except for rifles and long, run, long guns right now, or if it's just for these high-capacity high weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever they want to do, I'm open to doing something that makes sense. Whatever they want to do, I'm open to whatever makes sense. I hope that will age well. We'll see in time, won't we? He's also questioning why anyone needs to own high-powered AR-15-style weapons, but he does talk about why don't you ask them that question. But back away from Manchin and back to the number 10. There is a new statistic that may further explain why it's so hard to get at least 10 Republicans in the Senate on board with reforms to our gun laws. There's actually a new survey out, and the results may actually surprise you. 
44% of Republicans nationwide indicate that they accept mass shootings as inevitable, as part of a, quote, free society. Inevitable. I, I have to admit, I had to process that one for a moment. The idea that nearly half would say we should just accept mass shootings as maybe inevitable, I don't know if we can buy that collectively. And 85% of Democrats and 73% of independents say that in the poll, we can prevent mass shootings, quote, if we really tried, unquote. So if this is a starting point, inevitability, we got to try harder, what comes next and what's in the middle? And frankly, how do you explain to the people who shot over the weekend that either A, it was inevitable, or B, we really didn't try hard enough? We're talking about 14 people shot, three killed and 11 injured after multiple shooters opened fire in the South Street area of Philadelphia on Saturday. Now, police say that five guns were used after a possible physical alteration. altercation. Excuse me. We'll talk now to Philadelphia's district attorney, the former mayor, excuse me, um, in just a moment, the former excuse me, the current DA, Larry Crouch, in a moment. But first, I'm joined by former Philadelphia Mayor Michael Nutter, who is with us now. Are you there? There he is. It's a question whether you were going to be here or was Krasner first. I'm glad that you're here because you have seen this. And I earlier today I heard a, a, a colleague, a mayor, say there are three parties in this country. There's Democrats, there's Republicans, and there are mayors because everything falls on your shoulders as mayors to handle what the stalemate leaves behind in Congress. When you see these numbers, when you hear about the violence, what do you attribute it to? Well, Laura, thanks for having me on. And first and foremost, um, right here in our own city, um, my deepest condolences uh, to the families who lost um, family members over the weekend, families who had uh, family members shot, injured. Uh, and all of the families uh, this year, last year, and over all the years uh, who have suffered unnecessary uh, gun violence and, in many instances, uh, death. Um, it is uh, the, one of the toughest parts of being an elected official and certainly mayor of any city across the United States of America. We know that there are steps that we can take. We know that there are actions, not just words, but actions uh, that must be taken. Uh, there is no reason for any civilian uh, to have an AR-15. The AR-15 history uh, is a weapon developed by the, uh, a company for the military in the 50s, uh, transitioned into the M-16, uh, which was used in the 60s, uh, and then uh, was a primary weapon uh, in Vietnam. So it is a military type of weapon. There is no reason for any civilian in the United States of America to have an AR-15. I am a strong supporter of the Second Amendment, but I also believe I have a First Amendment right not to be shot. Uh, and so that's what we're seeing all across the country. Uh, yeah, yes, there excuse, are challenges me, of mayor, mental health me. On that uh, issues. Point, excuse me. Mm -hmm. On that point, when you talk about the idea of being a strong supporter, we have to, of course, think about the greater context here. You're a former Philadelphia mayor. Pennsylvania has certainly a gun culture. They have been far more um, embracing mm -hmm. of it as a concept than maybe other jurisdictions have. If you say you can reconcile the two, how can that be? Tell me about why you think sure. you can reconcile those two points. 
Of course. Um, you know, Pennsylvania, at least in our politics, a very, very purple uh, state. Uh, but when you look on the other side of Pennsylvania, uh, the western side, for instance, and some other parts, but you know, mostly in the West, uh, there is a significant gun culture. That is a culture of families and responsible individuals, traditions, uh, a weapon, uh, a gun uh, being transferred uh, from uh, father or mother to son or daughter uh, with responsibility. Uh, those are not the folks that we're worried about because on the eastern side of the state and other parts of the state, that gun culture is about shooting and killing people. And so reasonable gun regulation, increasing uh, background check, uh, even Senator Manchin talking about possibly raising the age, but also that we should not have uh, access to ghost weapons, ghost parts, high capacity magazines. Again, these are weapons of destruction. They are not for sport. They are not for hunting, uh, as the great tradition is uh, in Pennsylvania. And so yeah. uh, there's no conflict between the Second Amendment and the First Amendment. This is about weapons that kill and injure people. Yeah. There are certain weapons you cannot buy, even in a Second Amendment society. You can't buy a machine gun. Uh, most people can't. And so we need but to have a serious mayor, discussion. Hold on. I I'm hopeful that the Senate. Mm -hmm? I want to be clear. There are two different conversations that are happening, and we're in part having part of them right now. On the one hand, there's the idea right. of hunting and guns as a recreation. You've clearly demarcated now that from the eastern part of the state. I was thinking we were talking about the Philadelphia area where we're seeing the spikes in violence, which mirrors other parts of the country. What do you attribute that to? Is that a matter of, and you've gone after at one point in time, the current DA, Mr. Krasner, on this issue, blaming in part the idea of having a soft on crime or a progressive prosecutorial discretion strategy. Is that what you attribute, the dis clear distinction between those who are honoring Second, right, Second Amendment rights and those who are exploiting some sort, so maybe a, a perceived loophole in the law or the absence of prosecution? Well, there are certainly many reasons uh, for why gun violence is up. It's been going up in Philadelphia for the last five years, three years prior to uh, the pandemic. So it's not just a pandemic phenomenon. But also, you want to send a message to those who carry illegal weapons uh, that those weapons will be sought out, that you will be prosecuted, that you will go to jail for carrying an illegal weapon. And in the recent times, unfortunately, there's been a mindset or a message, directly or indirectly sent, that uh, somehow it's okay uh, to carry illegal weapons. That is wrong, that is dangerous, and that is a part of uh, the mindset of people here in this city and others that somehow you can get away with carrying an illegal weapon. We should have a no-tolerance policy for people carrying illegal weapons, ghost weapons, or any of this other activity that's going on. This is not that complicated, uh, Laura, uh, and uh, it takes strong leadership, takes direction, uh, and action, not just words. Michael Nutter, thank you so much. I appreciate your time tonight. I want to turn now to the city's top prosecutor, Philadelphia DA, Larry Krasner, who says it's time for lawmakers in his state to take, quote, real action. And he blames the NRA lobby for this and other mass shootings. He joins me tonight. Um, D.A. Krasner, I'm glad that you're here. You just heard from a former colleague, the former mayor of Philadelphia, who talks about the idea, I'm paraphrasing here, the perception that when you fail to prosecute those for having illegal possession of weapons, that they're somehow emboldened. Do you believe that's the case and why there is increased violence in your city? You know, it's ironic that the mayor who canceled libraries in the public schools and terminated prevention programs for youth is now touting himself an expert on what we should do about gun violence. 
If he hadn't done that many years ago, we would have a much more robust form of prevention in this city. Uh, and while I understand that he may have personal political reasons uh, as a non-lawyer who never worked in criminal justice for wanting to tout his own virtues, the truth is that when there were lower levels of homicide in Philadelphia, it was happening all across the country, just as it's happening today. So no, respectfully, I don't find uh, you know ex-Mayor Nutter to be very authoritative on these topics at all. I'm in my yeah, 34th yeah. year. Yeah. I'm in my 34th year in this kind of work. The issues right. that we are dealing with here are sweeping issues from all across the country. There's nothing that old leadership did that really brought under control the proliferation of weapons. We are in a country where we have 120 guns for every 100 people. It is more than twice any other country in the world. And we're paying the price for that. Uh, we have to do something about a country that obviously is more for guns than it is for people because we have more guns. And that means the kind of bold leadership that stands up to the NRA, that calls them out for what they are, which is the most destructive, violent organization in the history of the United States. And we need to be voting out politicians who want to take us backwards back towards the kind of things the NRA has stood for, back towards ending prevention, like Mayor Nutter stood for, we need to go after that by moving forward. Well, Larry, let me tell you, excuse me, on that point, I mean, you, it strikes me as particularly curious, and I can imagine the retort while we're sitting here today, that you're calling the NRA lobbying violent. Meanwhile, there is a surge of violence in a city where you have some control over being able to prosecute people. Now, there has been accusations that have been leveled against you in the form of saying, listen, look, we've got arrests being made in the area. Guns are taking, getting taken off the street. There's not a lot of convictions. What do you say to the idea that somehow the officer morale or the inability to address violence is attributed to your decisions to have a more progressive notion about a prosecution and how that goes forward? Again, you're talking to a former prosecutor myself. I understand the, the reality of having to actually prove a case even after an arrest. That's a very different hurdle. But what do you say to the reaction that says, no, no, it's not the lobbying, it's not the NRA, it's your failure to prosecute the bad guys? Um, I say that we have facts and they do not. It's actually not that complicated. The solve rate for the Philadelphia police in Philadelphia in the last measured year for shootings was only 17%. The solve rate for fatal homicides was only 28%. And while my office, like many other progressive prosecutors' offices, has championed forensics that would allow the police department to do a better job, there's really no interest on the part of the status quo and the dug-in uh, politicians in this field in that. This should have been done 30 years ago. We should have tools that will solve crimes. On the other hand, my actual conviction rate when it comes to gun violence shootings is on the order of 80%. It is actually as high as the most hang em high prosecutors in the past. The difference being we make sure that they're actually guilty and they did not, which is part of the reason we've had so many exonerations. People will say what they wanna say and they will say it when they have a political agenda, but the facts simply do not support any of that. The gutting of prevention in Philadelphia and across the country, the failure to invest in it, the movement of resources to make us the most incarcerated country in the world and also the most heavily armed country in the world, while we took those resources out of public education, out of treatment, has been a decades-long disaster. Going backward is the worst thing we could possibly do. We have to go forward. Well, let's go forward, because I understand there's charges that are being brought against somebody who was um, arrested in connection with this weekend's shooting. What's happening now? Well, we, have, we do actually have something new, which is that um, charges have been brought against two people. The second of the two people known to be involved in this terrible shooting 
that occurred in Philadelphia was uh, apprehended by U.S. Marshals and has been charged. This is a, a very heavily ongoing investigation. A lot of people are losing a lot of sleep over it. I've been to the scene myself. I've been on the phone less than 15 minutes ago with our chief of homicide, non-fatal shootings, an attorney in my office who works closely with Philadelphia police. ATF is collaborating closely. There has been a gathering of a tremendous amount of video that has shed a lot of light on what's going on. And one of the ironic things that we are finding is that this all grew out of a two-on-one confrontation, two people against one person. Uh, among those three people, this started out as a fist fight, and two out of those three people were licensed to carry a firearm. The, the, the genesis of this terrible mass shooting was not about illegal weapons. The genesis of this mass shooting was about everybody has a weapon. And so fist fights that in my day would have resulted in a broken nose or, or maybe at most a broken jaw turned into absolute mayhem on the streets, which takes me back. What are we going to do in a country that has 120 guns for every 100 people? What are we going to do about this? Other countries have dealt with this. We need to stop acting like guns are more important than people. And we need to throw out the politicians who got us here. If the NRA likes them, throw them out. If they if their lobbyists meet with electeds, throw them out. If they take money from the gun lobby, throw them out and we will have a safer society. Larry Krasner, thank you for your insight tonight. Keep us posted. There are more suspects coming as well. I appreciate it. We're going to keep this extraordinarily important conversation going with some great minds offering all kinds of perspectives or sort of leaning in right now through all the conversations. And um, I have to ask, is this the week something could finally be agreed upon, the Senate on guns? If not now, when? And is Larry Krasner right? Are we throwing out the politicians to even meet with the NRA? Next. Raising the age limit for, for buying semi-automatic firearms to 21 appears to be off the table. The two Republican senators leading the gun talks instead say they're focusing on changing the criminal background check system to access juvenile records, red flag laws, bolstering the mental health system, and beefing up school security all still appear to be in the mix for bipartisan negotiations. Let's talk about all this with now with Audie Cornish. Anna Navarro and Scott Jennings. I'm glad to have all of you here. I have to say, we just heard from two people who, they're not friends, right? Let <laughs> me just be very clear. You think. And they, they didn't agree on a whole lot, but this idea, let's start at the end of it. The idea of the DA Krasner saying, you have to sort of root out anyone who the NRA even supports. That is the lobbying. It's the lobbying that's the issue. It's not just the guns. What's your reaction to that? I mean, I'll start and say that, that that's, those are the words of somebody who doesn't want an outcome. I mean, we have a 50-50 Senate, a nearly divided House, a Democrat in the White House right now who's in a pretty weak political position. If you want an outcome here, you're going to have to have both parties at the table, which we do have going on in the Senate right now, and you're going to have to accept that it's going to be narrow, targeted, and germane to the tragedies we've seen lately. So if you want to go around and make political pronouncements, that's fine. But that, to me, signals someone who doesn't want an outcome. You said narrow, targeted, and germane. What to you is germane in this moment? Because usually that fluctuates depending on what the most recent shooting event is mm -hmm. and what media coverage is on in the moment. Yeah, well, I think, I think what Republicans, if they want to vote for something, they have to be able to tell their Second Amendment supporting constituents 
that this might have stopped this person from doing this act, whatever the act happens to be in that moment. And so whether it's the getting access to the juvenile records, flagging people who shouldn't have a weapon, those are the kinds of things. A lot of people talk about this debate and frame it as gun control. I think what you're going to hear Republicans frame it as is criminal control. And that's where we're headed, in my opinion. Is that, is that persuasive enough, though? I mean, the idea of criminal control. I heard both both, both of them said it's, it's not complicated. And they both persuasive had to have to a litany of things that were complicated. What? Persuasive to whom? To Democrats, to Republicans, to get the actual outcome you're talking Laura, about. There is no doubt that nobody's going to be happy with whatever agreement comes up, right? The people on the right are not going to be happy because the folks from the NRA don't want anything to pass. Their, uh, the, their procedure is put a chokehold on anything because anything will turn into a slippery slope and any day the government will come and they will take away all your guns. That's the NRA narrative and with what they have stopped any effort at gun reform, gun control for the last few years. On the left, if it's not a ban of the AR-15s, if it's not a ban of 18 to 21-year-olds, they're not going to be happy with that. So I'm to the point where I realize nobody's going to be happy with the agreement. I will be happy if anything passes, because it will be the first time that the NRA's chokehold is slightly broken and defied, and I hope that we can build on from there, and we can, and the Republican politicians can see that it won't be the end of their careers and of their political lives if they stand up for their constituents mm. and they stand up for things that 90% of Americans are for, like background checks, instead of standing up for the NRA, which is your, a special your interest bar is not Your bar is not oh, so my bar low. Is, that you're, my bar well, is, it's lo- it sounds low at first, Anna, but then you go on to talk about you want to be able to show that, hey, this incremental movement can mean not the end of your career, so maybe the next time, sort of here, ducky, ducky, come on to more of it. Is that too much to ask, Adi? Um, well, first of all, that is low. <laughs> you, are setting, low. you are setting a low bar. I think the question, uh, there's two things going on. One, your point about Jermaine, the problem is that's a shifting goalpost, right? Every time there's a different shooting or a weekend of gun violence, now there are different remedies depending on whether it is active shooter, mass shooter, more rare event, um, what people would call a gun or, uh, I'm sorry, street level or economic kind of violence that happens. Um, those need very different remedies. And there are very different issues at play when you try and deal with it. So first of all, that makes it tough. Second of all, in terms of the, the low bar, sometimes you have what's called a catalyst event. And there are shootings where we think, oh, my goodness, how could nothing have been done, right? Um, Sandy Hook Elementary, for Exactly. Example. Though, for the record, there was a movement there to try and hold gun companies liable. Mm-hmm. Did it, was it successful? No. But did it put on the table a new kind of question for people to raise, which is, like, can you hold manufacturers liable in one way or another? Is that fight still worth having? We'll see. And right now, the catalyst event coming off of Parkland, unfortunately, were those sort of red flag laws, right? The kind of uh, extreme risk orders that says if you're a risk to yourself and others, maybe we should curb your access to weapons. That has limits, right, for your street violence. I, I, you know, I live 30 minutes from Parkland, and I have a cousin who was killed at Pulse. His name Mm. was Jerry Wright. In fact, his parents were Republican voters and Republican donors. And after Parkland... Under Governor Rick Scott back then, we passed in Florida a ban from, for 18 and 21-year-olds where you have to now be 21. And this is the same Rick Scott who a few years later got elected to the Senate as a Republican and is now leading the Senate re-election campaign 
for, for Republicans. And so, yes, there is life after voting against the NRA. Yes, there is life after, against going after, uh, after going against the NRA. There isn't life after a mass shooting. There isn't life after having to bury little children in coffins decorated with what their interests were, mm-hmm. with little dinosaurs and, and Superman. There's no life after that. There's no life for my cousin, Jerry Wright. And Republicans have to understand that none of us are immune. When that mass shooter walks into that school or walks into that supermarket or walks into that church or walks into that temple, he's not going to stop and ask if, he, if somebody's Republican or somebody's a Democrat, if somebody's pro-NRA or somebody's against NRA, if somebody's yeah. pro-Second Amendment or against Second Amendment. And so the number people need to remember is the number to call their senator and tell them enough is enough because this is only happening in America. Well, let me tell you something. I want to play for you all a question that too many teachers are having to answer. This is, there was a moment, we'll explain it later on, there was a, a, a teacher at Uvalde who was, had 11 students in his class killed. And they asked him, what is going on? And he said, I don't know. Just hide under the desk if you're asleep. How many more teachers will have to answer questions? And at the end, we'll have funerals. We'll talk about just a moment. Adi, Anna, Scott, stick around. We'll be right back. Coming up, a retired judge killed in his own home. The accused shooter had a history with the victim. My next guest is a judge who was also once targeted in a deadly attack that claimed the life of her son. She says there is a common sense solution to this kind of terror. We'll discuss when CNN Tonight returns. A targeted attack. That's what cops are calling the killing of a retired Wisconsin judge. John Romer's body was found zip-tied to a chair in his own home on Friday. He was shot and killed, police say, by a man he sentenced to prison back in 2005 on a burglary charge. The suspect, Douglas Udi, is in critical condition tonight after police say he shot himself. Authorities also found a list of other potential targets, including Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. And this isn't an isolated problem. I mean, threats against judges have risen dramatically over the past decade. And my next guest is a judge whose family was personally targeted. Her son was shot and killed, and her husband was wounded in an attack against her two years ago. Judge Esther Salas joins us now. She's been pushing for federal legislation to protect other judges. Judge Salas, thank you for being here today. You know, it's been good. Good evening. 20- thank you for having me, Ms. I'm glad that you're here, but I wish we met under very different circumstances. And this has been almost two years since the death of your son, 22 months, 18 days. I know you are counting, and I understand why as a mother. I can't imagine what you've gone through, and yet you're channeling it in a way to try to stop this from happening again. Tell me about why this federal legislation would be so impactful to protect judges, and those who are doing their jobs to try to stop crime? What this legislation does is it it allows the judges to to seek and and to remove personally identifiable information off the internet, information that the FBI calls open source information, information that has been used time and time again to target us. And and Judge Romer, I'd like to, to say that he was assassinated. And there have been so many judges that have been assassinated. And it is now time for Congress to act. 
This was my biggest, biggest fear, Miss Coates. When this, when we began, and Mark and I began this crusade to try to get federal legislation enacted, legislation named after Daniel, the Daniel Andrew Judicial Security and Privacy Act. This is this is what I worried about, which was another judge losing his or her life. And the news this weekend has just been devastating. It might surprise people. Frankly, it shocks me at times to realize just the availability of information, the idea that somebody who could be a judge, the assumption would be by virtue of people who are trying to retaliate in some way, angered by the choices you've made and decisions you've ruled on, that there would be an overwhelming desire to protect. And you know how I believe that? We see that with, with the Supreme Court, with protests that have been happening. You have members of Congress vying for something very similar as well. Why is this such a difficult thing to try to pass? There is bipartisan support. What do you think is the actual hang-up here? You know, I, I wish I could answer that question because it, it boggles my mind. I mean, this this bill is is, is bipartisan, bicameral. We had we passed the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing with no objections. Uh, senators, uh, Senator Cruz, Senator Cotton. Uh, there are there is bipartisan support, so I I don't know what the problem is. But here's what I do know: in America, this should not be happening. In America, where we value the rule of law and democracy, this should not be happening. And at this point in time, we have to say to ourselves and say to our leaders: let's let us now work together. Let us now do what we need to do to protect federal judges and send a message to the would-be killers and send a message to the world that in America, we protect the, the, the rule of law. We protect judges. And that's, that's what so, we yeah. have to do. It's so important the way you have framed that, because I think when we're talking about how we hold ourselves out to the world as a nation of laws and the value of it and the beauty of that, and then not to protect those who are in charge of enforcing or handing down decisions... Let's be clear, you're not talking either or, either judges or Supreme Court, either Congress or judges. You're saying there is room in the same philosophy for everyone to have the same outcome. Absolutely. I am not saying that members of Congress shouldn't seek protections for themselves. Certainly not saying that. But the Daniel Andrew bill has been ready for months. We have been begging for months. We have been doing what we can to really just you know, stress the importance. And then we see Judge Romer. And I have to tell you that when I think about his family this evening and when I think about all that they are feeling, I know only too well, this is a life or death situation. These are decisions that need to be made and they need to be made now. And I, you know, I, 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 I agree with you that it isn't at either or. This is let's work together. Let Daniel's Andrew's bill go forward and then mirror our bill and push your bill forward. But the fact is that 22 months and 18 days ago, I lost my only child, one that, quite frankly, was a blessing from God. But Mark and I lost. We literally had four miscarriages. And, and Daniel, we called our karma baby. We no longer have our child on this earth. We no longer worry about ourselves. We worry about other judges, other families. And we worry, really, I worry about the rule of law because I, I see it eroding. And I see us at, as a country and as a nation in trouble if we don't turn this tide right now. Judge Salas, thank you for sharing. And thank you for sharing Daniel with the world. I appreciate it. <sighs>
Thank you so much, Ms. Coates. Have a lovely evening. You too. On the other side, you're about to hear from a teacher who survived the Uvalde school shooting, describing the very moment that he encountered the gunman and the horrors inside this classroom where 11 of the 19 murdered students were killed. That's next. heartbreaking account of what happened inside the Uvalde classroom where 11 children were killed. None of them who were in Arnolfo's, excuse me, Arnolfo's Reyes classroom are alive tonight. Keep that in mind. None are alive tonight. And when you hear what you told ABC News about those children and some of their final moments, you might want to brace yourself. The kids started um, asking out loud. Uh, Mr. Reyes, what is going on? And I said, I don't know what's going on, um, but let's go ahead and get under the table. Uh, get under the table and act like you're asleep. He was shot himself twice. And he says that he had to play dead for more than an hour until law enforcement stopped the killer. Yet now, almost two weeks later, as we continue to push for answers from police about what they were doing in the critical moments that he was trying to give these children some semblance of comfort and providing a chilling glimpse at what those decisions would mean for the children who were cowering in fear, listen to this. One of the students from the next door classroom um, was saying, officer, we're in here, we're in here. But they had already left. and then. he got up from from my behind my desk, and he walked over there, and he shot over there again. Why you let that reality sink in? I mean, really, try to imagine what that was like. I can't tolerate my children being scared for ten seconds. Imagine what's going through that teacher's mind and parents all across the world tonight. We're going to talk about this, and I know the conversation is not easy. But you know what was not easy and what won't be easy? Trying to forget what happened in that classroom, in either classroom, and we shouldn't. Next. Get some reaction now to what we heard from a teacher who was shot in the Uvalde massacre. He described how one of the students in the classroom next to him was trying to get the attention of police Officer, we're in here, we're in here. But they had already left. Back now with me and my in-studio in guests tonight. You know, first of all, I have to say, we, we are reeling during these conversations. It is very difficult. And my concern is, when things are very difficult, people have a tendency to try to avert their gaze, to move on to the next thing. They want a moment of levity. They want to forget it. And as you described during the break at one point, Adi, the notion of, how all the different mass shootings we've seen, you know, one is a school shooting, one might be in Philadelphia in terms of um, an altercation that's turned violent. These might be opportunities for legislators to say, well, there's no solution now. How could I possibly have a one-size-fits-all bill with all these different reasons for the shooting? Are there too many off-ramps now, including not wanting to stay in the moment in a tragedy? 
Well, I think it's hard to come up with a, a, a solution when there are so many different issues, right? You can't just say, oh, this will be the thing that solves it. So I think lawmakers in particular, and especially some of the gun policy activists, are looking access for a very specific reason. The FBI has done research on active shooter events, and while the demographics don't necessarily tell you everything you need to know, there is a pattern, and that pattern is grievance, then grievance moves to research and planning, purchasing, whatever you need to do to commit that offense, sometimes acting out in ways that other people notice. In the, other, in the under 18 crowd, a lot of times kids and teachers, or their uh, sort of fellow cohort notice these things, but there's no way to tell law enforcement, so to speak, right? There's a huge gap between uh, what I might have seen or heard from someone and who do I get it to? Who do I tell? And then what do they do? And once you tell them that, can you infringe on their rights? Do you trust law enforcement not to uh, racially profile? Do you trust law enforcement to, um, to, uh, to do what they're supposed to do in terms of prevention efforts? Um, and even in the case of, say, red flag laws, you know, in Florida, they didn't necessarily fund training <laughs> to put those in place. So does your local police, in- police department have the ability to process even extreme risk orders? So there's just sort of like a lot of moving targets um, and I think it, uh, sorry, that's a, a bad way of saying it, but there's just a sort of, a, the goalpost keeps changing. Um, and I think that's what makes it difficult. I don't just say that NRA is not a problem, but I also think it's creating a boogeyman when there is actually a greater sort of um, kind of cultural discussion going on about what should access Well, be. I think the NRA is absolutely a, a huge part of the problem because they dole out enormous amounts of money, millions and millions of dollars, and they move votes. They've got four and a half million, five million members, and the NRA has evolved enormously. But as you and I know, they've been... But there are that could be countering the NRA and are actively trying but they're not, to. But, they're not, they, but those PACs that you're talking about don't move vote, voters in Republican primaries, and that's where... These the legislators, cowards that they are, putting their political careers in front of kids' lives, are being held hostage. And listen, the problem with the off-ramps is that one side wants to say it's all about mental health, it's all about school security, it's all about this. The other side wants to say it's all about guns. I don't understand why voters don't say it's not an either-or. Don't play us for idiots. This is not an either-or. We have a gun issue epidemic on the, in this country, and we need to approach it holistically and have an all-hands-on-deck approach. I think on this NRA question, you know, the NRA is not an, an empty vessel. It's made up of millions of people. And so to say that the NRA moves votes, what you're actually saying is that there are millions and millions of Americans who strongly believe in the Second Amendment, and they strongly believe that as a law-abiding citizen, they don't deserve to have their rights infringed upon. So I think it's more complicated than... Then you make it. But, I think, but, but Scott, I, when I, the NRA, I, don't, I, don't want to, I have a right to not be shot. What yeah, do you say to that? But are you a litmus <laughs> no, test? No, no, no. But listen, when, and when, I think that's a big difference. Well, I'm a black woman from the Midwest. But I'm a litmus it, test. But is it <laughs> your you litmus that. test when you go to the ballot, or do you care more about Roe v. Wade, or do you care more about yeah. immigration? There are voters when it comes to um, gun gun policy for which the Second Amendment is their litmus test. I will not vote someone who doesn't do X, Y, and Z. Democrats have not built the same coalition on the other side in terms of reaching the ballot box and saying, I won't vote for anyone unless they're going to do it. But the NRA that you and I know has been around for over 150 years, and they have changed, they've evolved enormously. It, It started as a gun club, a hunting club, started by two Civil War generals. It is now mostly funded and led by the gun industry a gun industry that got them 
to uh, pass legislation in 2005, making them immune from any sort of litigation. But the if gun industry itself is powerful, right? And the NRA in recent years has been really crippled but by they're corruption. they're powerful through the NRA. But they're you know, funding you, the NRA. I mean, but, 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 I, I just they, don't know if it's a good... Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, we, we <laughs> over that. Go ahead. Uh, but, but, but truly, truly, Republican voters, conservatives, NRA or not, strongly believe in the Second Amendment. And so whether they're going under the banner of the NRA or anything else, they're not going, whether they view it as corrupt, they're not going to give up on something Ooh, that they fundamentally Scott, the other, believe. The other day I saw Bill Frist, the, the former Senate president, Republican Senate leader, tweet out that he was yep. now in favor of a ban of AR-15s. Imagine that was a that. huge change. It is a huge change. We'll come back at this point later. Thank you for watching. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.